Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Karen Nelson, and I'm, I worked here for 10 years. That was a wonderful period in my life, my family, and I have worshipped here for just about 20 years at this point, and I'm really fortunate that I am occasionally asked to get up and preach. It is a gift to me. Um, usually at this time, uh, you are told that you can take your Bibles from the pews, but we're not going to use our Bibles today. However, those are always there for the taking for anyone who needs one. So if you don't have a Bible at home or you have a friend who would like a Bible, please feel free to take one with you. Um, today we're going to be reading from a version of the message. So if you want to read along, it's printed in your worship folder and you can join with me. First scripture is Galatians 6:2, and it says simply, share one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The second piece of scripture are the words from Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 12. This is the version found in the message. If I had a mind to brag a little, I could probably do it without looking ridiculous, and I'd still be speaking plain truth all the way, but I'll spare you. I don't want anyone imagining me as anything other than the fool you'd encounter if you saw me on the street or heard me speak. In order that I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of chronic pain to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he did, in fact, was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove it. Three times I did that. And then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the pain and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Jesus' strength moving in on my weakness. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here today. My heart is still beating from those worship songs. We know your spirit is here with us, and I ask um, that you would speak to each one of us exactly what we need to hear from you today. That any words I say that shouldn't be there would disappear, and that any words I don't have printed would come to life through your spirit, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. This is the third sermon in our series on mental health. Pastor Abe preached the first two, and I am honored that I was asked to come and speak today. Two weeks ago, Abe addressed the stigmas that have long been attached to mental illness, and last week we addressed the topic of listening well and sharing our stories. My assignment was to address the topic of self-care. I believe in self-care and self-compassion, as you heard the last time I preached. But as I prepared for today, I was thinking about all of the years that our belief at Emmaus was that we were together in the journey, and how now our aim is to be a place of faithful companionship. And then I came across a sign that said, we are all just walking each other home. It struck me as both truly beautiful and profoundly true. So I chose it as the title for today's sermon. We are all just walking each other home. With these things in mind, today I believe that we need to travel back both to last week and to a place of perhaps less conventional ideas about what self-care should be, at least among those who together love Jesus and strive to live according to his hopes for us. 
Before I travel that path, please know that I believe in therapy, counseling, medication, mindfulness, restfulness, self-help books, and all of the other ways that we can tangibly take care of ourselves when we are struggling with issues of mental health. I have accessed every method on that list, some of them many times, some of them currently. I believe that they have been tools essential to my healing and growth as a person. I live a richer, fuller life because of them, and I consider them all to be gifts from God, just as I consider the chemotherapy that cured my mom's cancer and the surgeries that healed our son's wounds and injuries gifts to be thankful for. And I was so touched when Pastor Abe shared from 1 Kings 19 two weeks ago, telling the story of Elijah when he was in turmoil. Elijah prayed to the Lord, asking that he might die, saying, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, as I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down on a rock and fell asleep. The Lord's response to Elijah was so tangible, so human. He sent an angel to his exhausted child. The angel then gently touched Elijah and said, get up and eat. Elijah looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, but he was still so tired that he laid back down. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat. So Elijah got up and ate and drank and was strengthened by this. I have been that tired. I have been at the point of saying enough and longing to lay down right where I am, even if it is on hard ground. So have many of you, I know. One thing that I've incorporated into my self-care practices for when I'm experiencing anxiety and an oncoming sense of doom is to allow myself to stop and to eat something that is both comforting and nourishing. I do not worry that I am eating my feelings. What I am doing is stopping and acknowledging that I'm not doing so well right then, that I need a little care, a little pause, a little something I can feel immediately grateful for, a little sustenance so that I can get up and continue on my way. I know that God blesses us as we work to heal and to grow. I also know that for many people, a life of perpetually good mental health is not on the horizon. My journey may not be as long as Elijah's or as painful as Paul's, but I know that it matters just as much to our loving Father. So does yours. Which brings me back to the path I want us to walk down today. What does self-care in the midst of struggling with mental health and mental illness look like for those of us who follow Jesus in community? There is no direct reference to mental health or mental illness in the Bible, but scripture is full of people who are anxious, afraid, distraught, and broken. There is a reason why scripture tells us that God draws near to the brokenhearted, that he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. There is a reason we know that Jesus broke down and wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. Scripture also tells us that Jesus, being in such mental anguish, anticipating the pain of the crucifixion, prayed so earnestly to his Father that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When God chose not to take that cup of suffering from him, Jesus felt betrayed by our shared Father. The language may have changed, diagnoses may have been created, insights have certainly been gained. But when I read a piece written by a friend's daughter last week, a young woman who wrote that on this past February 4th, her sweet baby, 
at 40 weeks and one day of gestation, had been born into the arms of Jesus, and that every piece of her ached with a desperate longing to hold him, I thought of Mary, the mother of God, who watched her son die in a horrific and humiliating manner, what both those women suffered. I was reminded that the human experience has never really changed. In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher of the cross who was known as a truly joyful man, but who also at times suffered from depression, wrote this. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and then no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Mental illness is not a new phenomenon. Mental illness is not simple either. The term mental illness spans a vast spectrum. There are some suffering from severe illnesses such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anorexia, PTSD, trauma recovery, and others who have challenges such as postpartum depression, a more generalized type of anxiety, milder forms of obsessive compulsive disorder. Thankfully, our society is beginning to make great strides in accepting that mental health is every bit as important as physical health. With all that in mind, I found so many choices in scripture preparing for today, but I settled on the messages translation of Paul referring to the thorn in his side for several reasons. Before I go into the reasons why I did, let me state one reason why I did not. Biblical scholars have long debated what the thorn in Paul's side was and what exactly he means when he says he was given a thorn in his flesh. I so certainly don't know the decisive answer to that, but I know that I do not believe, nor does this church teach, that God has given anyone a mental illness. And we certainly do not believe that they are a punishment for sin. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man and his followers ask him if the man was blind due to his own sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus says, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Paul says something similar about his affliction. I was given the gift of chronic pain to keep me in constant touch with my limitations, Paul says. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he did, in fact, was push me to my knees. No danger, then, of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. I so appreciate the translation into the words chronic pain. Mental illness, or a lack of, a men of mental health, often feels like chronic pain, invisible chronic pain. It most certainly, too, feels like Satan's angels trying to bring you down. So much of battling mental illness is battling the lies we tell ourselves, that we are not good enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, that we are failures, losers, that we don't deserve the good things we have and that the people we love surely deserve a lot better than us. Satan is the father of all lies. In fact, scripture tells us that the only weapon he has, the only weapon he needs, is to get us to believe the lies we tell ourselves. One way that changes in attitudes towards mental illness are changing can be seen in the way that mental health is being openly addressed at our high school. Last year, two students who are part of a group called Students Supporting Students, a group whose mission is to support students with mental health challenges, made a video to share with the whole school. They did a remarkable job. They asked teachers and administrators to volunteer to share their struggles with mental health. 
I said yes. I had to. Our own Hannah Graw was one of the kids making the video. <laughs> no. I'm only partially kidding. I teach child psychology classes at the high school, and the topic of mental health struggles naturally comes up in class. I have chosen to share my experiences with the students for several reasons. The first came out of necessity. Many of you know the story of Virginia, a neighbor of Emmaus who battled for years to overcome addiction. As a church, we were fortunate to be able to walk alongside her, and I was fortunate enough to eventually be able to call her my friend. When she died three years ago, I found out about her passing in the morning as I was getting ready for work. I was deeply saddened for how hard her life had been, for all the dreams she had that would never come true. But I did what we do when I went to work. When I started teaching first hour, I kept tripping over my words and dropping things and became totally flustered. So I paused, I thought for a moment, students looked at me curiously, and then I took a deep breath and told my students, ninth through 12th graders, that I was sorry I wasn't doing a very good job that morning. But I was so sad because I had just learned that a friend of mine had died. They got the most gentle looks on their faces. And one student in the back row, a student who knows sadness, stood up, walked to the front of the room, and gave me a big hug. They asked about my friend, and then suggested that they just work quietly. I had a full day ahead of me, so I appreciated their kind offer, sat quietly at my desk as some tears fell, and they were quietly on their own. I realize this isn't exactly a matter of mental health, but it was a very positive experience in being vulnerable with students. Soon after, we were talking about anxiety, and a young man who had never experienced it asked me to describe it to him. I paused, I thought, I again took a deep breath and decided for the first time to share my own struggles with anxiety both as a child, as an adult, and as a teacher. The only movement while I spoke were a few tears running down some cheeks, and the only sound was a few sniffles from those students who knew all too well what it was that I was describing. A few weeks later, students were assigned to research a topic about exceptional challenges some children face and to give a presentation to the class. I'd done this assignment the previous year, and it had gone fine. I had 36 students at this time, and until the presentations began, I had no idea what was about to happen. But when all was said and done, 16 students had shared about their personal struggles with mental health and mental illness and eating disorders, and two shared about profound disabilities their siblings had and what it was truly like for them to live with that. The most powerful moment was when a young woman with severe ADHD who had some very challenging behaviors that honestly had worn many students down over her 12 years as a student in the Northfield schools, shared that she hated the way her medication feels, like a zombie, she said, but she shared that she continued to take her pills because it was the only way she felt she stood a chance of having any friends. The levels of honesty, vulnerability, and trust in that room took my breath away. Since that time, I've chosen to share about my own struggles with all of my psychology classes. So when I was asked to be a part of the video on mental health, which would be shown to the whole school, including my coworkers, while I felt a little sheepish and a little self-protective, I said yes. It seemed hypocritical not to. The day the video was shown simultaneously in all the classrooms was a remarkable day for those of us who shared our stories. I was genuinely moved to tears by the painful 
stories and the insights my coworkers shared, and I had conversations with them afterwards that I never would have had otherwise. And all of us who were in the video received many kind words and emails from students and coworkers. Often along with the kind words came personal stories of their own struggles with similar issues. And then something unexpected started to happen. I began getting an email here and there from teachers I knew who worked in other Northfield schools, and they had seen the video. Then I received emails from people I didn't know who worked in other Northfield schools. It turns out that people were sharing the original email link. Okay, I thought, that's okay. It feels a little weird, but it makes sense. But then I began getting kind comments from people I knew, but who were in no way connected to the schools. And recently, someone here walked up to me and said, hey, I saw that video of you posted on YouTube. <laughs> wow, I thought, a lot of people suddenly know a lot about me. Those of you who know me know that I hate having my picture taken. And ironically, as it is happening right now, I really hate being videotaped. I actually say that in a school video. It's the opening line of the whole darn thing. Can we please just get this over with? <laughs> That alone makes me feel very vulnerable. So finding out the tape is just out there for anyone to see, that felt like a lot. It makes sense that it is, I just wasn't expecting it. But as I've thought about it, I tried to imagine if I really would have said no to my friend Hannah, if I really would have tried to hide my story. This brought to mind something I shared years ago at a Women in Touch breakfast. I had a very dear friend at the time. We met in Bible study fellowship when we were 20 and quickly became inseparable. For nearly a decade, we talked almost every day about almost everything. But one thing we were rarely ever allowed to talk about was her obsessive compulsive disorder. This was ironic because I too was struggling with OCD behaviors at the time and I wanted to talk to her about it. I don't know how else to say this, but sadly, her behaviors were much more severe than mine. I remember describing my behaviors to our friend, Karen Oiseth, one time, and I said, basically, I have to take pills to stop vacuuming. To which Karen replied, wow, I wish I could take a pill that made me start vacuuming. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> For my old friend, her obsessive compulsive disorder resulted in her having a home full of things that she didn't need. She was so anxious about finances that she was forever buying things on sale. It made no sense from the outside that a single woman would have 50 fresh bottles of context lens solution in her hall closet or a filing cabinet full of every receipt she had ever been given lest she was ever audited, but it made sense to her. Also, sadly, in her Christian belief system, she felt it was wrong to seek out counseling or take medication, even though it was clear that my doing so had benefited me tremendously. Because I pushed things, I knew more than anyone else in her life about the way the illness played out. During this time, we moved to Northfield, and she bought a home in South Minneapolis, and we got together every few months. It took time to notice, but gradually, whenever I went her way, she asked me to meet somewhere rather than to have me pick her up at her house. Once, when her car was in the shop and I had to pick her up, she was standing on the front step, door locked behind her, ready to go when I arrived. And she stopped inviting me in after we'd have dinner, as she used to do. I realize now that her house was getting out of control, but I didn't know it then. 
Then one day we were going to walk around Lake Harriet. She said she wanted to meet me there. I pushed back and said that was silly. I would drive right past her house on my way, and parking at the lake was hard to find. We went back and forth for a little bit, since, but since I was going to be running errands before walking, I told her I would just call her when I was done. I did call. I said I was coming to get her. She said, we're meeting there. I said, I'm coming to get you. She said, we're meeting there. I said, I need to use your bathroom before we walk. She said, use the one at the lake. I said, the ones at the lake are gross. She said, stop at a gas station. And I said, why won't you let me in the house? Is there a dead body in your basement? She hung up on me. I raged to myself. I can't believe she won't let me in her house. I can't believe she won't let me in her house. I can't believe she won't let me in her house. And then it hit me. My best friend won't let me in her house. This house. I went to the gas station and called her back. We went for a walk and pretended the whole thing never happened. And our friendship slowly faded after that. My dearest friend hid her story from her dearest friend. Paul said that his affliction was something he could hide if he really tried, but he chose instead to be transparent about the foolish way it made him appear in public. If there is one thing I never thought about my friend, it was that she was a fool. If there was one thing no student ever said to another when they shared their stories in class, it was that they were a fool. If there was not one thing no one who has seen the mental health video has said to any of us who chose to share in it, it's that we are fools. What most of them say is thank you for sharing. I've been struggling with that for years. And then a real human connection is made. When I cried in class, the students didn't treat me as a fool. They treated me like a human being in pain. If I had continued to just trip over my words and drop papers, then perhaps they would have thought I was a fool. Today's additional scripture is from Galatians 6.2, which says, share each, share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. The law of the Christ is the commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I can only share your burden if you share your burden with me. You can only share my burden if I share my burden with you. God does not tell us to share our burdens with everyone all the time, but he also does not tell us to only share our burdens when we are prepared, feeling perfectly safe and up to being vulnerable. Whoever really wants to be vulnerable. Yet I can only love you as I love myself to the extent that I know you as I know myself, to the extent that you let me into your messy house, to the extent that I let you into my messy house. Perhaps one of the ways we can best practice self-care is to allow others to care for us. Returning to Paul, today's scripture has revealed how much pain he is in and how the pain makes him highly aware of his limitations. He goes on to say that he begged God to take his suffering from him three times and each time God said no. Lord, please take this from me. No, my child. I will not take your pain. My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into your own, in your weakness. Father, please, can't you see how much this hurts? No, my child, I'm sorry. 
but I will not take your pain. My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. But Jesus, I hate this. I really hate this, and I can't do this anymore. I know, my friend. I know it feels that way. I know what it feels like to feel overwhelmed, to feel as though our Father has forsaken you. But no, our Father and I will not take your pain. My grace is enough. I promise it's all you need. I know it's hard to see, it's hard to believe, but my strength, my strength comes alive in your weakness, Paul. Paul admits for a long time that he did not accept this, but once he did, he says, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the pain and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Jesus' strength moving in on my weakness. In the darkest hours of mental health, it can be nearly impossible or impossible to get out of bed, to eat, to pick up the phone, to make a decision about the simplest of things, to have a positive thought or to believe that every moment for the rest of your life will not feel exactly like this. In the grayest hours, the thought of going to school or work or a friend's house can leave you spinning. Should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? What will happen if I do? What will happen if I don't? Am I a failure? What will they think if I don't come? So many questions, so many spinning thoughts. I don't think Jesus is asking us to jump up and down with joyful gratitude for our pain in those moments. Jesus didn't express thankfulness while in his painful moments. He cried out to God, asking him to stop the pain. He told his own father that he felt forsaken. And yes, Paul came to see his thorn as a gift of God's grace, but it took a long time to get there. And I am going to take the liberty of assuming that Paul's pain was not easy to bear after that just because he found a way to appreciate it. That would make no sense. Yet we all know the hardest of times are often the most meaningful. When my mom, who was a, has a truly happy disposition, was diagnosed with, at 72 with three types of cancer in three months, she was terrified. And indeed, she went through many hard things. But a year later, she declared it had been the best year of her life. There was no way to hide her pain, and so many people from her church, one she hadn't been at very long, stepped in to share her burden. She summed the year up by saying, I had no idea how loved I was. Jesus moved in on her weakness through the body of Christ. Now she has a ministry of reaching out to people who have recently been diagnosed with cancer and offering to share their burden. It took me a long time to learn to share the truly painful parts of my life, a long time. But when I did, Jesus moved in on my weakness. At one of my lowest points, I mustered up all the courage I had and called an old friend to tell her honestly how down I was. She listened and she loved me. Several hours later, I was sitting on the edge of my bed, looking at the cornfield behind our house, feeling so hopeless. When I felt the presence of Jesus sitting next to me in a way I never had before, he just sat with me. A few minutes later, a text arrived from my friend. It said, I don't know what you're doing right now, Karen, but I've been praying that you feel Jesus beside you. She shared my burden. Jesus moved in on my weakness, and I am grateful for one of the most powerful moments in my life. I do not mean to belittle anyone's pain by telling you to be grateful for it. Yet God has told us to give thanks in all things. He didn't say that to be callous. The Lord isn't cold. He is the creator of compassion and mercy. God says this because he promises to use all things, 
all things for good for those who love him. Sometimes that good may be for you. Sometimes that good might be for someone else. Maybe someone who needs a little help finding their way home. Perhaps another way to practice self-care is to try our best to find a way to appreciate our burdens. God created us with a true and deep longing to connect with himself and with others. The words from today's scripture, fulfill the law of Christ, are only used two times in all of scripture. And one of those times is right here, telling us that in order to fulfill the law of Christ, we are to share each other's burdens. One of the best feelings in life is a moment when you feel truly accepted just as you are by another person, when you connect over an authentic human experience. So often it, God's love comes to us through others. But someone has to go first. Someone has to say, this is my house, my messy house. I wouldn't have chosen it. I don't always like it, but it's mine and I'm grateful for it. Would you like to come in? Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for every beautiful person in this world, in this room. Thank you that you love us and you care for us and you long to help us connect with each other. You long to see us carrying each other's burdens. You long to see us trusting you hand in hand as we walk home. Amen.